Uh, well, good morning, everyone. Uh, after uh, two weeks off from being up here, it's really, really good to be back with you. Uh, a few weeks ago, uh, I uh, am confessing that I was whining and complaining to Minette. Uh, many of you know Minette. She's our administrative assistant. And I was being a big baby, complaining about that I've had to go on this corn-free diet. And I was complaining about not being able to eat popcorn anymore. And she says, you know, I was at the store and I picked up something. It's not like a true replacement for popcorn, but you might like it. Well, later that day, she ends up dropping off this bag of bada bean, bada boom, flava beans. All right? They're broad beans. You roast them and they add these flavorings to them. And little did she know that she was about to create a bada bean monster. Like, I am an evangelist for these things. In fact, her husband Dan and I love these things so much that we've actually sent texts back and forth like, hey, have you tried this flavor? You know, in fact, his curiosity got the best of him that he went out and purchased the Bada Bean Bada Boom box, the boom box. And it has like, what, four or five of every flavor in it. And he like put one of each flavor in a Ziploc and like had Manette give it to me. You know, so I've got to try them all and I love them. And so, like, I've been sharing this with everybody. I was at a track meet with my daughter. Here, try these. You know, I, I put, in fact, I put them out for the snack one night at the Warburg Wrestler Bible Study that I lead, and they devoured them. They're like, these are so good. You know, like, I've become an evangelist. I've been telling everyone about how good these things are. So would you believe that there have been some people that I have shared these with, they've tasted the awesomeness and gloriousness of it, and they've gone, eh, like, how could they? I mean, these are people that clearly cannot be trusted, right? <laughs> it, whatever opinion they have, don't listen to them because bada beans are the best snack ever invented. And I just can't believe anyone would taste it and go, you know, I, I think I'd rather have something else. Have you ever had someone put something up so high, they put the expectations up there, that, that you thought this has to be the greatest snack in the world, or the greatest clothing item, or this is going to be the best movie I've ever seen. But once you've experienced it, the reality did not match the review. Anyone have that? Okay, yeah, a few hands go up. Yeah, you, you watch this, you know, uh, trailer, or, or you see the review on Amazon, and it somehow leads you to believe this is going to be awesome. And instead, after you're done, you're wondering how in the world could anyone give this even one star, let alone five stars? The reality did not match the review. Well, that experience that you had, that is exactly how some people have felt about God. In their 1987 hit song, You Too Sang, about Jesus. You broke the bonds and you loosed the chains. You carried the cross of my shame. But I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Many people, like U2's lead singer Bono, have been looking for something and they've even tried Jesus. They've tried the church thing. They've tried some Christian activities. They've said their prayers. They've raised their hands during worship. And yet when it's all said and done, they feel empty and they feel like they still haven't found what they're looking for. I bring this up because today, as we go to the Psalms, we're going to hear King David encourage his readers to taste and see that the Lord is good. But what if you've tasted 
and he's not good. You see, Christian evangelism for years has dangled this carrot out there that if you just give your life to Christ, if you just put your faith in God, then you will find happiness, you will find peace, you'll find meaning in life. And, and, and it's almost like you voted for Napoleon Dynamite's best friend Pedro for president. All your wildest dreams will come true. But what do you do when they don't come true? What do you do when you taste and the experience leaves you going, eh? What do you do when the review does not match your reality? To discover, I invite you to open up your Bible to Psalm 34. Uh, we're in our second week of our series through the uh, book of Psalm. Last week, uh, Matt uh, kicked it off for us. Uh, if you did not bring a Bible, we're going to be putting the words up on the screen. Uh, I apologize. I watched uh, the, the uh, uh, Matt sermon last week, and everything looked great on my phone. We got here this morning, and the words are a little washed out. So this is why you need a Bible in your hands. Now, if you're a first-time guest, we allow digital Bibles. So if you have a Bible on your phone, totally feel free to pull that out. If you want to go old school like me, but just don't own a paper Bible, we have some translations back on our uh, resource table. We'd love to just give you a Bible. Bible as our gift to you. That way, when you come back next Sunday, you have a Bible with you, but then you also have a Bible that you can use on Monday and Tuesday and any day. We really want to put the scriptures in your hands. We believe God is on a mission of helping people just like you to find Jesus and follow him, to live like Jesus lived and love like Jesus loved. The way God does that, one of the ways he does that is to help us learn about Jesus through the scriptures. And so we want to put the Bible in your hands and make it available so you can read it any day and every day. Um, I'm going to give some introductory remarks on Psalm 34 to help set the stage for what we're about to read. But before we do, I want to pray. So would you please join me? So Heavenly Father, we want to pause before we uh, dive into the scriptures here. Because we realize, or at least I do, that you wrote these words through David's pen so long ago. And yet these words that were, were for David himself and for his readers in his day, these words have lasted through the centuries. Because they weren't just his words, they're yours. And so, God, I pray that you'd open our ears up to you. I, I pray that you'd help us to hear what you've put in here and that we would leave here today challenged but also encouraged that we would not just filter uh, this, this uh, passage through our own biases, but that we would open ourselves up and allow you to teach us and, if need to, to correct us. So that's why, God, I, I pray that even though I put in some time and work and energy into this message, ultimately I ask you to be our teacher. You be the one to speak to the hearts and minds of everyone who's connected to this right now, whether they're here in person, they're joining us online, or they're listening to the podcast later in the week, that you would do in them what you want to do and need to do to help them to live like Jesus lived and love like Jesus loved. And we pray this in his precious name. Amen. The Psalms are comprised of 150 poems or songs. Of these 150 Eight of them are known as acrostic psalms. Uh, many of you know what an acrostic is, but just in case you forgot from middle school English, an acrostic is where you take one word and usually write it vertically, and then you create different words off of it. So like the six-year-old who puts together the Mother's Day card you know, and writes mother and says, uh, like, marvelous, uh, outgoing, uh, tartar sauce maker, you know, like whatever they can think of in the moment, they just kind of put on the card, all right? That's an acrostic. All of the acrostics in the Psalms are alphabetical acrostics, meaning they work through the Hebrew uh, alphabet. Now, the Hebrew alphabet has 22 letters in it. So if you have your Bible open there, you're looking at Psalm 34, and you're going, oh, 
there's 22 verses. So each verse would start with a letter. Well, you would think that. It turns out, by the way, I'm not a Hebrew scholar, so I had to let others help me discover this. It turns out that when David was writing this, in verse 6, he, he does the next correct letter, but instead of the next letter being at what we know as verse 7, it's at the second half of verse 6. Then in verse 7, he continues on with the pattern, which means when you get to the very end, verse 22, it doesn't fit the pattern. He, he adds like this extra phrase and just uses another one of the letters. Now, there might be some deep significance in that. If so, I don't know what it is. I apologize. I, I, I couldn't discover it. I don't know why David did this. But if you're a Bible trivia nerd, you now have another little piece in your nugget, and you can impress your Bible nerd friends later uh, with, with that. So I want to read all of Psalm 34 because we're going to look at several verses in it, but then we're going to hone in on one section today. So join me at verse 1. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O oh children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Two years ago when I was on sabbatical, uh, we did a series through the book of Psalms. Uh, and same exact graphic, same title, Summer of Psalms. And uh, so this week as I was preparing, I went back and looked and I saw that Ed Pavlik, one of our elders, who's right now stationed with the National Guard in Arizona, Ed taught through Psalm 34. And I was thinking, well, maybe I shouldn't do it. But I was being drawn to Psalm 34 because in Psalm 34 is my wedding verse. Last Saturday, the reason I wasn't here is Leanne and I got away for our anniversary and celebrated 28 years of marriage. And so on, well, thanks. Um, she's put up with me a long time. She should be applauded. Uh, but uh, with, with our anniversary, it just got me thinking about that verse. And so the, the verse that was on our wedding program on June 4th, 1994 was verse three. 
Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. When Leanne was in high school, her youth pastor, good old Hank Nelson, taught a lesson and in the lesson just kind of had this side note and basically encouraged the teens in the youth group to not just look at someone of the opposite sex in, in interest, romantic interest, and decide, are they attractive enough? Are they funny enough? Are they kind and respectable? Would my parents like them? That really the question they should be asking themselves, is this a person that I could worship God with? Could I magnify the Lord with them? I am so glad that Leanne took those words to heart because I was nowhere near as tall as what she was hoping for in a guy. I was nowhere near as handy as what she expected in a man. And I also wasn't nearly as good looking as she probably could have landed. But when she looked at our friendship, she thought, that's a guy with which I can magnify the Lord. I can exalt his name, and we can do that together. And so it became our wedding verse. But as precious as verse 3 is to me, I don't think it's the most famous verse out of the psalm. As you were reading through there, if you're familiar with the Bible, you may have heard several phrases in there that you're like, oh, this is where that's from. For instance, maybe verse 20 stood out to you. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. The reason that would be familiar to you is that in John chapter 19, when Jesus is dying on the cross, the soldiers are coming by and they want to bring the bodies down. Well, the way to do that would be to break their legs. Then they could no longer push up on that nail because with their arms extended, they can't breathe. So they would push up on the nail that's through their feet to try and get some air into their lungs. But, so by breaking the legs, they can no longer push up and then basically they just die of asphyxiation. Well, when they get to Jesus, they think he's already dead. And so to make sure, they stab the spear up into his side, into his heart, and blood and water pour forth. And, oh, yep, sure enough, he's dead, as if the spear wouldn't have done it if it wasn't already. But they didn't break any of his bones. And John says that this was prophesied back here in verse 20 of Psalm 34. Maybe verse 18 was familiar to you. Maybe you've used this to, to comfort yourself or to comfort others. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. And you've gone through a tough time. Sometimes you just needed that reminder. The Lord is near the brokenhearted. Or maybe you heard a pastor preach on verses 13 and 14. To keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Another famous verse out of this chapter. But I would argue that the most famous verse in all of this is verse 8. Verse 8 says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. David is so convinced of God's goodness that like me with bada beans, just simply says, taste it, try it, and you'll see that the Lord is good. And when you put this in context, you can kind of see why David is so excited in saying this. Look back at verse four. He says, I sought the Lord and he answered me. And delivered me from all my fears. And then down in verse 6. This poor man cried. He's talking about himself. This poor man cried. And the Lord heard him. And saved him out of all of his troubles. If you've ever gone through a really, really, really difficult time. And then suddenly come through it. You understand why David is excited. If you survived a, mirac a, a horrific car crash. And you miraculously walked out of it. You, you can't help but praise God. If you find yourself going through some sort of health battle and then you go to the doctor and you discover it's gone, you can't help but sing God's praises. 
If, if you find yourself going through a financial crisis, wondering how you're going to be able to pay the mortgage, and suddenly you get a check in the mail or something gets deposited in your bank account, and you have no idea where it came from, and it's the exact amount you need, you know exactly where it came from. And you're echoing David in Psalm 34. Oh, taste and see, the Lord is good. But as I've already alluded, there are people who've tried to taste and see, but they walk away convinced that the Lord is not good. Sometimes they even walk away feeling like maybe there isn't even a God. After Leanne and I moved to Waverly, we were trying to meet people. We had this conviction that we weren't here to start a church that would just take Christians from other churches. We really were trying to meet those who had no church uh, background at all. And we end up in a conversation with this couple, and I'm, I'm just going to call him Josh. And uh, Josh naturally asked, so what brought you guys to Waverly? So, well, we're actually here to start a new church. And the way he was acting, I could kind of tell, like, maybe church isn't really his thing. So I asked him, so do you and your family go to church? He's like, well, no, that's not really our thing. In my head, I'm thinking, great, I'm going to invite you to be a part. And then I found out that he was agnostic. So I started asking him some questions. Well, you know, how did you come to this conclusion that there, there is no God? He's like, well, I'm not saying there is no God. There might be. I just don't see any evidence of him. It turns out that Josh grew up in church. And at his church, he had been taught that if you pray, God will answer your prayers. Well, he grew up in a very poor family. And so he would pray before every single meal, breakfast, lunch, and supper, even a lunch at school. All of his friends would make fun of him, but he'd stop and pray. And his main prayer was, God, would you provide for my family? That's all, all he wanted. And for years, his family remained in poverty, which led him, by the time he got into middle school and high school, convinced that not only did he try to taste and see that the Lord is good and discover he's not good, he became convinced that he tasted and saw that there is no God at all. And so thus, Josh was an agnostic. Or I could tell you about Renee. She believed that if she just applied everything that her church and parents taught her, that God would bless her. She thought that would mean, you know, a great marriage, great kids, great life, great career. But when she found herself in a very unhealthy relationship, there was even abuse, it began to cause her to question everything. Or I could tell you about Charles. Charles was being named as the next Billy Graham. But one day when he saw a photograph of a mother in Africa who was malnourished going through a drought, he wondered, if there really is a God, how could he allow that to happen? And that began the crumbling of his faith to the point that he decided that there is no God. And if there is a God, either he's not good or he's not powerful enough to fix that. He, he saw the reviews about God, but it didn't seem to match his reality. I could go on. I could tell you about Adam. I could tell you about Danny. I could tell you about Stephanie, Dave, Zach. I mean, I could tell you about all sorts of people who tasted, they tried it out, but the reality did not match the review. And they walked away from it all. So what, what do you do? Do you just chuck it all out the window and chuck it out of your life? Well, I know this isn't going to come as a surprise because I'm a pastor, but no, I don't think you should chuck the Bible in Psalm 34 out. Instead, what I think you need to do is change the lenses with which you read it. You see, almost all of us have these mental reading glasses where the lenses are me and now. And so we read passages like this wondering, what will I get out of this? What is there for me in my present circumstances? 
And what I think we need to do is exchange those glasses for something else. Because to wear the glasses of me and now sets you up for hurt. But I can't blame you for wearing those glasses. I wear these glasses because these are the glasses I was born with. When, when you were born, when you came out of the womb, you were mad. Because your warm, comfortable world was just rocked by the earthquake of labor and some cruel masked doctor brought you out into the freezing cold and the blinding light. How dare they? And so you screamed because it was all about me and now. And as we've all grown through life, we've continued to view all of life and faith and the scriptures through these lenses. So we need to take them off. Because when you wear these glasses, it, it, it sets you up for hurt. Now, there are some people that wear these glasses, they will taste God, and they will see that he is good. I, I, I could tell you about times in my life where God has done some great things for me in the here and the now. I, I could tell you about times that he's provided for us financially. Uh, just the fact that Leanne's still married to me 28 years later is, is a sign of God's goodness. I mean, I, I could tell you about all sorts of things. So there are times where I have tasted and I have seen the Lord is good. But I can also tell you that there are times where I have tasted and I have not liked what I have tasted. I've confessed before that during the first year of Riverwood as we were planting it, I went through a horrific depression. And it was, during that time, I was nowhere near like, oh God, I love you. This is great. This is wonderful. In fact, if, you, if your Bible's still open there, look at verse 1. David starts this whole entire thing off. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. During my good days, I can easily say that. But during Riverwood's first year, I couldn't. I found myself shaking my fist at God going, really? Like, I was obedient. I left everything behind to go and plant this church. And this is how you treat me? You're not providing for me financially. You're not providing for me relationally. You've got people saying all sorts of things about me. Like, this sucks. There's no way I could have been saying, but God, I will thank you and praise you in the midst of the storm. So when life's going good, man, Psalm, 35, Psalm 34 is awesome. It's great. But on the bad days, it is so difficult to believe it. That is why we need different lenses. The reason I was struggling so much is I was looking at it through the lens of me and now. I didn't like how uncomfortable I was. Why isn't God working right now? And I had lost hope. But, but Aaron, time out. As I read through this, it sure seems to me that David is looking at this through the lens of me and now, because as you read through chapter 34, you see a lot of me, my, I, and it seems to be all about right now. Well, I'll give you some leeway. You would be correct to an extent. If we just keep Psalm 34 isolated, you might say, Aaron, it is all about me and now, and God isn't working in my now, and so he clearly doesn't love me. But I would say you need to look at all of David's life. David did not have an easy life. Yeah, he became king of Israel. He became Israel's most famous king. He is the prototype and the, the one through whom God brought Jesus. And yet his life was not easy. 
as a teenager. He was anointed as the next king of Israel. Israel had longed for a king, and God's like, no, you don't need a king. You got me. But we want to be like the other nations. Give us a king. So God's like, all right, fine. Here's Saul. And Saul was a bad king. Saul looked at everything through the lenses of me and now. And he was not faithful. So God tells their prophet at that time, Samuel, I've rejected Saul, and I'm going to bring in someone else. Head out to Jesse's home, and you're going to anoint David. And yet, for the next many years, David was having to run for his life because Saul did not want to give up his throne. And when Saul was going to die, he wanted his son Jonathan to take the throne. Never mind, Jonathan actually wanted David to have the throne. But he was rejecting him. And so Saul was going after David to kill him. That's why in Psalm 22, David cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He knows what the dark night of the soul is. He knows what it's like to look at God and go, Really? This is how you treat me? I thought the Lord was near the brokenhearted. Where are you? So David knows. And on the bad days, he writes Psalm 22. But I would even argue that Psalm 34 isn't one of the good days. Because if your Bible's still open there, look back at verse 1. There's a tiny little prelude right before it. And you'll see it's talking about a very unique story in the life of David. You see, David is being pursued by Saul. Saul wants to kill him. And so David goes to the land of Gath, G-A-T-H. When he's in Gath, some of the people recognize him. That's the great warrior, David. The one who slayed Goliath, the one who's killed tens of thousands in war. And so they want to bring him before the king. But if he's brought before the king of Gath, David fears that the king of Gath is just simply going to hand him back over to Saul, and Saul will then kill him. And so David begins to act crazy. Starts letting drool come out of his mouth into his beard. He starts scratching at doorposts, starts getting a vacant look, starts making weird sounds. And so when they bring David in before the king of Gath, the king looks at him and goes, this is the mighty David? Now, this is a madman. I've got enough madmen in my, my nation. Get, get this guy out of here. And David's able to escape and flee for his life. Now, maybe you're a little different than me, and you'd be walking out going, ha ha, that was great. I think I'd be walking out going, that was embarrassing. That, that was not my best day. God, why did you allow me to get put in that situation? And yet, out of that situation, he writes, Psalm 34. So I don't think this was on his best day. So how in the world could he then write, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise will continually be on my lips. Come, let us exalt his name together. Let's magnify him. How could he write that after such an incident? It's because I don't believe he was only wearing the glasses of me and now. I think he took those off and put on different glasses. The reading glasses I think that we all need to put on have the lenses of eternity and the gospel. Eternity and the gospel. Let's first look at the lens of eternity. What we need to do is we need to get out of looking at things through the lens of now and start looking bigger, broader. By having a lens of eternity, we can look into the past as well as into the future. First, by looking into the past, we can be reminded of what God has done that just because my current situation isn't exactly what I want it to be, it doesn't mean everything is over. It's not like God is, 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 is uh, silent and, and not going to do anything else. Remember, I referred to Psalm 22. 
This is where, Je- where David says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which Jesus quotes on the cross. Later in verse 22, just three verses later, verses four and five, David writes this. In you, our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you, they cried and were rescued. In you, they trusted and were not put to shame. So here's David fleeing for his life. He's afraid Saul is going to kill him. He's wondering, what is God up to? Where is God at? Why have you forsaken me? And then it's like he goes, but David, time out. Look in the past. Look through the lens of eternity. You see God work. He could see that God had worked in the life of the Israelites, in the life of his ancestors, his forefathers. And because God worked then, maybe God could work now. Some of you are Jesus followers. And God has done some really great things in your life. And so let me encourage you. If you're going through something difficult right now, look back in your past. See what God has done. Remind yourself, oh yeah, I went through that really difficult time and God worked. And so I can trust him right now. Let that reminder bring you hope. The great thing is, you don't have to just look at your own past. We can also look into the biblical past. We can look back and see what God has done throughout history, especially what God did through the cross. We're going to talk about the cross here a little bit more later, but let me encourage you, look through the lens of eternity, look back into the past. But also the lens of eternity helps us to look forward, to look at the future. In John chapter 3, Jesus is having a conversation with a rabbi named Nicodemus. Nicodemus has come in at night because he doesn't want the others to know, but he's got some questions about Jesus. He, he, he senses there's something different about this guy. And through the course of the conversation, Jesus says those famous words, John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but would have everlasting, eternal life. So anyone who puts their faith into Jesus, believes upon his name, believes in his work through the cross in the empty tomb, they have eternal life. Now, it doesn't mean their physical life will last forever. We will be given physical, new physical bodies in the afterlife, but the spirit of who we are will continue forever with God. And we learn about heaven throughout scriptures, but especially in Revelation. In Revelation chapter 21, verse 4, it says that in heaven there are no more tears. Why? Because there's no pain, there's no sorrow, there's no mourning, because there's no more death. Death has been defeated. Death has died. And so we get an eternity with God. And so, even if God does not heal you of the cancer, even if he chooses to let you remain alone, even if he allows you to remain barren, even if he doesn't change the financial situation, if your life is in Christ, then God will rescue you. It may just be at the end. But this is why Paul, as he looks at the light and gloriousness of eternity and looks at the pain of this life, says, this is a momentary affliction. This will pass away, and we get an eternity with the good and glorious God. But please don't misunderstand my words. This does not mean you should not pray for the here and now. God loves you. He's passionate for you. 
And so by all means, appeal to him based upon his love, his mercy, his grace. Go ahead and ask him to bring that healing now. Go ahead and ask him to change the financial situation. Ask him to to bring someone into your life who will encourage you and help you through. But even if God doesn't answer that, it doesn't mean he's abandoned you. Because he will answer you eventually. But if he does it here and now, then you'll start sounding like David in Psalm 34. But don't just look at this through the lens of now. Also look at it through the lens of eternity and see what God will do and what he has done and let that encourage you and give you the strength to carry on. But the second lens in our reading glasses are the lens of the gospel. The lens of the gospel. I have a conviction that all of the scripture is really about Jesus. I don't think the Bible is just a book of history, even though there's a ton of history in it. I don't think it's just a, a book about moral living, even though there's great ideas and, and, and uh, life-changing truths in it. I, I think ultimately, it's all about God's love for humanity as shown through Christ. And so I believe that the Old Testament predicts the coming of Jesus. It's to prophesy him and, and prepare people for him. Then you've got the four Gospels which present Jesus to us. And then the New Testament uh, epistles and, and the rest of it pointing back to Jesus saying, here's the, how, the difference that his life and resurrection should make. So I believe that all of the scriptures is really about Jesus, not about us. That means Psalm 34 then isn't really just about us. It's about Christ. And I see it in two ways. First, I see Psalm 34 being fulfilled by Jesus. Here, here's what I mean by that. Uh, if your Bible's still open there, look at verse 1. Who better is able to bless the Lord at all times than Jesus? Or how in verse 3? Who is better to invite us to magnify the Lord with him and to exalt his name together? Or how about down in uh, verse 11? Who better to invite us to come and listen to him, to teach us about the ways of the Lord? And down in verse 14, who better was able to turn away from evil and do good, to seek peace and pursue it? No one did it better than Jesus. Jesus lived this out perfectly. You and I, we sure try, but we have our bad days. Those days where we struggle, the days where we're not pursuing peace, we're pursuing our own way, our own wants, our own desires. But if you have put your faith in Christ, then the Holy Spirit has come to live within you and he is working in you to mold you and change you into that image of Jesus. So that then as you enter into that relationship with Christ, he begins to work through you. He begins to help you to live these things out more perfectly. So rather than a bunch of platitudes that you're like, well, I can't do that. You can surrender to God and let him continue to work in you because Jesus has already fulfilled this in totality. So really, this is about Jesus, not just about us. And we see that through the lens of the gospel. But I think there's a second way that we see, uh, uh, we understand this better through the lens of the gospel. And that is, I think David is unknowingly pointing to the story of Jesus' death and resurrection. We, we know David as a king. We know David as a shepherd. We, we know him as a warrior. We even know him as a poet as we're studying these psalms this summer. But what we don't often realize is that there were times where David acted like a prophet, In his psalms, he ends up pointing to the gospel. He points to Christ. And he does that right here in Psalm 34. Now, I've already alluded to one of those in verse 20, 
where John, in John chapter 19, it says that that's a prophecy about Jesus. But I believe the whole entire end of this points to Jesus. So if your Bible's still open, look at verse 19. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. That word afflictions, I learned this week, could be translated dangers or trials. But as I looked up the word in, in a, a Hebrew dictionary, turns out it really means evil. So let me ask you, what is more evil than sin? Some of you may be going, well, yeah, I can think of several things. Actually, though, the things you're thinking of, that's sin. What is more evil than sin? Nothing. We face the afflictions of sin every day. We feel it, the brokenness in our own lives, and we see the brokenness in the world around us. And yet, what does David say God will do? The Lord delivers him out of them all. Through the cross, Jesus brought us out of the affliction of sin. God no longer holds our sin against us. When we put our faith in Jesus, like John 3.16 says, God forgives us of that sin and begins to restore the image of Jesus within us so that we can have this eternal life with our loving Heavenly Father. So here's David probably thinking. He's writing about his situation and encouraging others to follow God. And yet he's unknowingly pointing to the gospel that the afflictions that we face, we are delivered out of them. We are delivered from our sin because of Christ. That is why he finishes it in Psalm 22. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. If you are a follower of Jesus, your life has been redeemed. Just like you redeem a coupon Jesus redeemed himself. He paid the price for you so that you could come to God. He could make you his. Psalm 34 is about the gospel. It's not about me and now. It's about the love of God shown throughout eternity and the love that's bestowed upon you through the cross of Christ. So if you find yourself going through a really difficult time, you find yourself tasting and feeling like I'm not seeing God as good, if you put on different reading glasses, you'll suddenly see he is good. He can be trusted. He is at work. And even though he may not be resolving it in the here and now the way I want, he will resolve it eventually, and he's already done everything needed. He's given me Jesus. And so let me put my faith in him, let me trust him, and let me say I will bless the Lord at all times, and his praise will always be on my lips. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help us to be these kind of people that we would be people who would truly be able to worship you in all circumstances. And so, God, we need you to give us different reading glasses. We need to see things differently because we live with ourselves. We have our own desires, our own wants, and these seem to try to capitalize everything we do and think and say. And so that's why we need you to transform us, to give us new minds, to give us a new heart, to, to give us your spirit so that we might then begin to see life the way you see it, to see life from your side of heaven, to see what you call us to, and to see that you are at work even when we may not be able to see it directly ourselves. So God, we repent. We repent of our selfishness, of our narcissism, of expecting you to jump through hoops to fit the way we want you to. We repent of looking at this through the lens of me. We also repent of looking at things through the lens of now. Now. 
How we've expected you to just microwave a, a miracle and to put it on our lap so that we could just stay happy and fat and comfortable. Instead, God, help us to trust you that you are at work deeply in our lives, that you can use both the good and the evil to shape us into that image of Christ so that we can be your vessels here in this world to love like Jesus loved and live like Jesus lived. So God, we surrender ourselves to you right now, asking for you to take these old glasses off and put these new ones on, that through the power of Jesus, you would help us to see what you've done in eternity past, what you will do in eternity future, that we would also see what you did for us through the cross, that you, Jesus, loved us so much that you went to the cross to die our death, to pay our penalty, so that you might give us your life. We might step into a relationship with our Heavenly Father, that your image within us might begin to be restored and shine forth. So God, help us through these very words of Psalm 34 to be changed, to not just try and view it for what we can get out of it, but instead hear what you call us to, to hear your love, to sense your grace, to know you are around us, to see your power, and to truly be able to say that we have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.